trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where we gather to revel in wrong things. And it's actually a lot more fun than it sounds, right? I mean, it sounds vaguely subversive, (laughs) something that some rascal would do. But guess what? The fact that you are here indicates that uh, you are probably on the path to becoming a rascal. And let me explain what I mean by that, because I don't want people to think, well, is he calling me names? Are you saying that I'm something, something bad? A rascal is nothing more than an authentic character. There's actually an excellent book by Chris Brady by the title of Rascal. And it's uh, it's one of the coolest books I've ever read in that it's a call for people to stop trying to be like everybody else. Stop trying to follow the crowd. Stop trying to, you know, blend in and, and be safe and just be yourself. And if you look around you and you notice the people who really have impact on the world, it's the people who are okay with being themselves. But the, the price for this is you got to march to your own tune. You've got you to find out what it is that's yours and yours alone and then pursue that with all your heart. Ah, it's not so hard, is it? Well, actually, it's, it's uh, kind of tough. Or otherwise, everybody else would be doing it. But you don't see that so much these days. So I've got some great stuff to share with you in this hour. And, and it's going to be centered around the idea that you are part of something that you may not even have recognized. And it's something that, uh, I, I don't know when I first became aware of this. I'm thinking it may have been close to 20 years ago, maybe longer. But it's a thing called the remnant. I, I'll tell you what sparked this, this thought in my mind. Um, one of my dearest friends, one of the truest defenders of liberty that I know, he and I stay in touch a lot because we have a lot to talk about these days. And there's, there's just a ton of stuff happening that is disturbing to anybody who's paying attention. You know, I've got friends who've said, look, if you don't feel sick to your stomach, you're really not paying attention. And I think there's some truth to that. But yesterday I got a text from this friend saying, hey, have you ever heard of Albert J. Knox's essay called Isaiah's Job? And, and he says, mind blown. This is just incredible. This is, this is like personal mission. And I was very happy to tell him, hey, if you go back, every time I have ha- had the opportunity to speak in public, at least for the last 10 years, maybe the last 15 years, I have referenced Albert J. Nock and his essay, Isaiah's Job. And the beautiful thing about that is, um, in a nutshell, what Albert J. Nock is talking about is something that I think some people are feeling. I was going to say a lot of people, but I don't know if it's a lot of people. I think it maybe is just some people. I suspect you may be one of those people. So let me pose this question to you. Um, just, you know, answer this in your heart. You don't have to shout out the answer if you're you know, driving along in the car. But do you feel almost a sense of calling to stand for what matters in your life? In other words, it's not just, yeah, you know, it's a good idea. And, you know, I think I should probably, you know, give a nod to it. Yes, this is good. I approve. But but to actively stand for what you believe. 
In fact, let me take it one step further. This is going to push some people right to the point of discomfort, but here we go. Do you get a sense that maybe God has something in store for you? It's yours alone. It's, it's, it's a unique way to impact the world that only you can do, with the caveat, with God's help. And if your answer is even, well, maybe, or I've kind of thought that, or, I, I, or if it's a definite, yeah, absolutely, I feel that then I want to recommend Albert J. Knox's essay, Isaiah's Job. It's something you should read sooner than later. I'm going to get to the essay in just a moment, but I want to set the stage by first exploring the difference between a disciple, a follower, and a cheerleader. If you're going to stand for something in your life, you know you should probably know the difference between these categories and how they, how they contribute to the structure of a movement. Now, Dr. Gary North wrote about this clear back in 2004. And this is his explanation. He says, in every movement, we find these three classes of adherents, disciples, followers, and cheerleaders. And it's not always clear in the early stages of a movement which adherent belongs in which category. So let's start with the disciple. Gary North says a disciple is an early convert. He decides that a master teacher has something to say that's both unique and important, so important that the disciple publicly abandons his commitment to the status quo. He establishes a personal relationship with the master. At this early stage, the master must be careful in the selection of disciples from the pool of enthusiastic candidates. The more attractive he is or the more attractive his doctrine, the more people he will attract. The character and commitment of the would-be disciples are not tested. And he reminds us, you know, out of the 12 disciples, uh, Jesus did attract a ringer. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him? Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. Okay, good lesson there. Ludwig von Mises had two sets of disciples in his career. The first came to him in the aftermath of World War I, when socialism was attracting the best and brightest of a generation. Mises' challenge to the economists and the intellectuals of his day was comprehensive. In Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth, published back in 1920, and in Socialism, published in 1922, he threw down the gauntlet to socialists everywhere. Socialism is economically irrational, he argued, because it abolishes private property and therefore abolishes capital markets. Men cannot know what any resource is worth without free markets to inform them, and they cannot know what the most valuable use is for any scarce resource. Well, a group of very intelligent young men switched their allegiance, their allegiance rather, from socialism, and they identified with Mises. Now, some of these names you'll recognize. Maybe some you won't, but they included F.A. Hayek. Ever read The Road to Serfdom? Wilhelm Ropke, Fritz Malchup, Machlup, rather, uh, Gottfried Hobler, 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 and Lionel Robbins. We're talking Europe, right? You can tell, because I'm having trouble with the names. These all adopted Mises' views back in the 1920s, and they also established personal relationships with him. And in the 1930s, as a result of a prolonged worldwide depression, all but Hayek and Ropke switched the allegiance again, this time to the mixed economy. We're talking about the one articulated by John Maynard Keynes. 
Hayek had attracted his own followers in the early 1930s, John Hicks, G.L.S. Shackle, Kenneth Boulding, Nicholas Cador, and Abba Lerner, all switched to Keynes and away from Austrian economics. Now, Mises' second group of disciples assembled in the post-World War II period when Mises was living in New York City. His evening seminar at New York University was the equivalent of his by-invitation-only seminar in Vienna. And among his disciples were four Ph.D. students, George Reisman, Israel Kirzner, Louis Sparato, and Hans Senholtz. Then there were Bettina Bien, her future husband, Percy Greaves, and Rothbard. Yes, Murray Rothbard. Henry Hazlitt was at the time one of the most influential disciples. At a distance, 25 miles up the Hudson River, were the senior staff members of the Foundation for Economic Education. Now, the point here is this. What he's trying to tell us is disciples go out and recruit more people. Some of these recruits become disciples of the disciples. They recruit followers. Now, I know a lot of names have been dropped here, and there's a good chance that you're not familiar with very many of them. But look at the pattern. And this is, this is the key. When it comes to being a disciple, it's usually not, uh, this is not the pathway to a life of ease and fame and recognition and accolades. Typically, disciples have to give up something. I mean, look, the, the root word for discipline, disciple, there's, there's, uh, there's sacrifice involved. But I think the most important takeaway about what it takes to be a disciple is you have to be willing to be called away from the status quo. You have to be willing to walk away from the status quo. And there just aren't that many people today who are in a position mentally, maybe sometimes financially, where they can do that. Now, when we come back on the other side of the break, we're going to talk a little bit about followers. These are the people who don't really have direct contact with the founder. They're attracted by the founder's books or other written materials. Maybe they're attracted by one of the disciples, but they remain at a distance and they do their best to think through the principles of the founder. In other words, they start to view the world through his glasses. And there's nothing wrong with being a follower, so don't don't take that as a pejorative. But we'll get to the cheerleaders eventually, and we might get a little pejorative when it comes to describing them. By the way, there is a link to all of the stuff I'm talking about here, including Albert Knox's essay, Isaiah's Job, in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You might want to check it out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back. Our show is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org. Also, LifesavingFood.com and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Sorry, I had to throw that last part in there because uh, we uh, I never know. This this uh, this program could could be heard almost anywhere. I was looking actually at, uh, at some of the different places where uh, where the podcast version of this is, is listened to. And I'm happy to tell you, you know, 95 percent of my audience is right here in the good old USA. 5% of my audience is spread throughout the world. And we're talking through about, I think, uh, three, maybe four dozen different countries. But this one sort of blew my mind. 
1% of that 5% of my listening audience, uh, podcast listening audience, outside of uh, the U.S. is in Brazil. I mean, look, I was a big fan of Sergio Mendes, but I, just, I don't know. I'm, I'm really not, uh, not sure what that means. So I've been sharing with you this uh, disciples, followers, and cheerleaders concept. This is something Dr. Gary North wrote about clear back in 2004. You understand disciples challenge the status quo. They, uh, they are actually a founder or a, someone who has something very innovative, challenges the status quo. The disciples turn their back on the status quo. I think the Bible it went something like, and they straightaway left their nets and followed him when Christ called his disciples, okay? But then there come followers. And what the followers do is they extend the founder's message to the world at large. They write or they teach. Maybe they just read and apply what they've read to their immediate circumstances. But their goal is to extend the founder's innovative vision of the world to those around them by word and deed. Now, followers receive little applause, but that doesn't bother the ones who are truly dedicated because they're not really after applause. They might get opposition, but that also doesn't bother the hardcore. In fact, they expect opposition. So they go about their business day by day, and if anyone asks them why they do things differently, they provide an answer. If you remember, Peter, a disciple of Jesus, told, told his readers, Sanctify the Lord God in your heart, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That last part, by the way, is important. It's not chest beating. It's not uh, braggadocio. It's just you're humbly taking that message out there. The follower understands this principle, says Gary North. He hands out articles. He suggests web links. These are the people who were described by Albert J. Nock in his uh, 1936 essay, Isaiah's Job. They're attracted to the master or the prophet. They like his message. Somehow they hear the ideas of the master and they come one by one to read the writings of the master, but they don't join anything openly. They do not think of themselves as organizers or even as part of an organized movement. They internalize the message and they begin to apply it. Now a cheerleader. All right, let's, let's get to the cheerleader. A cheerleader seeks attention. A cheerleader wants to be seen. It's not clear to him or anyone else why he should be seen. His means of gaining attention is to attach himself to a team. He wants to be on the winning side. He wants to be seen on the winning side. And cheerleading is an American institution. Now, it serves no useful purpose, but it's always there at high school and college football and basketball games. Where there's a large crowd to see the team, there will be cheerleaders. With sports where there is no crowd, there are no cheerleaders. And cheerleaders pretend that they control the crowd. The crowd pretends that their organized cheers in some way help their team or thwart the opposing team. They stand, they sit, they cheer in an organized way. They do what the head cheerleader tells them to do. But these efforts have no effect. The team pays no attention. The outcome of the game is not influenced by organized cheers. This is Bula Bula in action. It's a system of pretense, layers of pretense. The cheerleader thinks of himself as part of the team effort, but he isn't. The individuals in the crowd think of themselves as part of the team effort. They aren't. When cheering really matters, there is no organized direction. Individuals get excited by something on the field and they cheer. And this unorganized noise may actually have an effect on the team, but that which is organized doesn't. In fact, cheerleaders want to bask in the glory of the team. They want to think that the public recognition accorded to team members will be accorded to them as part of the team. 
but a cheerleader's easily replaceable. If he's replaced, there will be no perceived difference in the actions of the crowd or the team. And, of course, no cheerleader wants to admit this. The cheerleader is part of the game's environment. He doesn't make the team, but he doesn't want to be part of the team. He doesn't have the talent to make the team. Above all, he does not want to be part of the crowd. The office of cheerleader exists for the sake of cheerleaders. It has no useful function other than this. Gary North says it's for public amusement and personal ego gratification. Now, occasionally, cheerleaders do acrobatic stunts, and they deserve recognition for this. But remember, these skills have nothing to do with the outcome of the game. The cheerleaders are there for the amusement of attendees when nothing important is happening in the game. For those who are paying close attention to the game, cheerleaders are a a distraction. And his point here is that in every ideological movement, there are cheerleaders. They want to be part of the disciples, but they're not sufficiently gifted or committed. Or maybe they showed up late. Access is closed to them. And they don't want to be part of the crowd because it's not enough for them to be followers. Grubbing out a daily existence in terms of the founder's precepts. They want to be seen by all as almost a team member, almost important to the cause. They see the conflict of visions as a game. And what they fear most is rejection. They fear rejection by the captain of the the team. Rejection would expose them as peripheral to the outcome of the game. They don't want to be peripheral to the game. But they cannot get on the field. Besides, those opposing linemen are bruisers. Pretty interesting distinction, right? So the conclusion Gary North comes to is, followers need disciples to extend their vision. Founders, rather, need (laughs) disciples. Sorry, bad eyes here. Uh, Disciples need to recruit more disciples, and they also need followers who will cheer them on when the going gets tough or when victory is in sight. There is, therefore, a role for the person in the stands who knows which team he is cheering for. At key times, his cheering may actually help the team when combined with unorganized cheering of those in the stands on his side of the field. Movements need committed followers. But Gary North says, as far as I can determine, nobody needs cheerleaders. I mean, it's nice to win the big game, but Bula Bula has nothing to do with the victory. Neither does Sis Boomba. <laughs> so I don't know where you, would, where you might find yourself. But that's, uh, that's an interesting way to look at how movements are structured. And if you are one of those brave souls who feels that sense of calling to extricate yourself from any of the mass psychoses that grip so much of our society, you are likely a part of what is referred to as the remnant. And this is where it really starts to get interesting. I highly recommend Albert J. Knox's essay, Isaiah's Job. That's one that you ought to read. And, and I want to just give a very brief explanation. Actually, I'll probably have to do this in the next segment. But when Albert J. Nock wrote Isaiah's Job, to set the stage for it, he had been visiting with a European acquaintance who expanded some political economic doctrine which seemed as sound as a nut. In fact, Albert Nock said, I couldn't find any defect in it. But at the end, his friend told him, I have a mission to the masses. I feel that I am called to get the ear of the people. I shall devote the rest of my life to spreading my doctrine far and wide among the population. What do you think? And Albert Nock had some tough love for his friend. It wasn't that he had a bad message, remember? He said, I couldn't find anything wrong with it. But he told him, if you are trying to take that message to the masses you should probably rethink what you're trying to do because the masses, when given a choice, 
more often than not will say, free Barabbas, right? In other words, the masses really don't want to hear what you have to say. Now, that's the bad news, right? Because the masses are more consumed with really transitory things. They want accolades. They want pats on the back. They want someone to tell them how great they are. They want checks with their name on them, as Tom Woods says. But there is a group out there that really wants to hear that message. That group is the remnant. That's the group for whom truth matters more than almost anything else. We're going to talk about them when we come back after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thanks for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Our program is brought to you in part by Patriot Home Mortgage, specifically the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George at 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, and you can call 435-703-4522. Bottom line, you uh, say, let's say that you're moving to Utah. You're moving to southern Utah. You found the home of your dreams. Let the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage quickly get you the loan you need at the best rates possible. They've got the experience. They've got the clout to make it happen, and uh, you need to do it without delay because that is one competitive housing market out there. Well, let's talk a little bit about Albert J. Nock and Isaiah's job. So Albert Nock was approached by a friend who said, I have a message, I have a mission to the masses, I am going to go out there and get the ear of the people. I shall devote the rest of my life to spreading my doctrine far and wide among the population. And Albert Nock, as he thought about what his friend was doing, said, you know, maybe you should consider the story of the prophet Isaiah. And since his friend was Jewish, he thought, okay, well, let's, you know, let's, in the Old Testament, let's, let's talk about it. And Albert Nock remind him the prophet's career begins at the end of King Uzziah's reign, about 740 B.C. And in the year of Uzziah's death, the Lord commissioned the prophet to go out and warn the people of the wrath to come. Now, Albert Nock is paraphrasing, of course, when he says this, but the Lord tells Isaiah, you tell them what a worthless lot they are. Tell them what is wrong and why and what is going to happen unless they have a change of heart and straighten up. Don't mince matters. Make it clear that they are positively down to their last chance. Give it to them good and strong and keep on giving it to them. I suppose I perhaps ought to tell you that it won't do any good. The official class and their intelligentsia will turn up their noses at you and the masses will not even listen. They will all keep on in their own ways until they carry everything down to destruction and you will probably be lucky if you get out with your life. Now, Albert Knox says Isaiah was very willing to take on the job. In fact, he had asked for it, but the prospect put a new face on the situation. It raised the obvious question, why, if all that were so, if the enterprise were to be a failure from the start, why was there any sense in starting it? Ah, the Lord said, you don't get the point. There is a remnant there that you know nothing about. They are obscure, unorganized, inarticulate, each one rubbing along as best he can. They need to be encouraged and braced up 
because when everything has gone completely to the dogs, they are the ones who will come back and build up a new society. And meanwhile, your preaching will reassure them and keep them hanging on. Your job is to take care of the remnant. So now be off and set about it. And from here, Nock goes into a great explanation of what exactly does he mean by the masses. You know, commonly used, it suggests agglomerations of poor, underprivileged people, laboring people, proletarians, but it means nothing like that. It just means the majority. The mass man, according to Albert Nock, is one who has neither the force of intellect to apprehend the principles issuing in what we know as the humane life, nor the force of character to adhere to those principles steadily and strictly as laws of conduct. And because such people make up the great and overwhelming majority of mankind, they are collectively called the masses. And the line of differentiation between the masses and the remnant is invariably set by quality rather than circumstance. The remnant are those people who, by force of intellect, are able to apprehend these principles and by force of character are able, at least measurably, to cleave to them. The masses are those who are unable to do either. All right, I got to dumb this down for myself because I'm a simple guy. But instead of just thinking of it in terms of uh, the, the principles, you know, at stake here, let's just use the word truth. The remnant are those who, by force of intellect, are able to apprehend or at least lay hold of the truth, and by force of character, to cleave to it, to live it, to make it a part of who they are. The masses, they don't care about the truth. They're, they're focused on far different things. And, and the picture which Isaiah presents of the Judean, Judean masses of his time is really unfavorable. In his view, the mass man, whether he's high or lowly, rich or poor, prince or pauper, gets off very badly. He appears not only weak-minded and weak-willed, but as by consequence, knavish, arrogant, grasping, dissipated, unprincipled, unscrupulous. Oh, and don't you feel smug, mass woman. You get off pretty badly, too, sharing all those same untoward qualities and contributing a few of your own in the way of vanity and laziness and extravagance and foible. But let's talk about the, the remnant. The remnant is what really matters because the remnant are those for whom the truth matters more than anything else. And I'm summarizing this because, you know, this is a pretty, it's, it's not a super long essay. You could knock it out in, in a fairly short amount of time. But if you really want to ponder what's going on, understand that the remnant does not care whether the, the truth is coming to them from, you know, somebody in a three-piece suit or a lab coat or a uniform or anything like that. They are much more concerned with quality. They want to know the truth, even if the truth hurts. Here's how Albert Knox says it. He says, uh, the main problem is uh, with the reaction to the mission itself. If, say, you're a preacher, you wish to attract as large a congregation as you can, which means an appeal to the masses. And this, in turn, means adapting your terms of your message to the order of intellect and character that the masses exhibit. You understand what he's saying there? If you're an educator, say, with a college on your hands, you wish to get as many students as possible, and you whittle down your requirements accordingly. If you're a writer, you want to get as many readers. If a publisher, as many purchasers. If a philosopher, many disciples. If a reformer, many converts. 
if a musician, many auditors, and so forth. But he says, as we see on all sides in the realization of these several desires, the prophetic message is so heavily adulterated with trivialities in every instance that its effect on the masses is just to harden them in their sins. Meanwhile, the remnant, aware of this adulteration and the desires that prompt it, turn their backs on the prophet and will have nothing to do with him or his message because he waters it down for the masses. Now, Isaiah did not have that problem. In fact, he worked under no such disabilities, according to Albert Nock. He preached to the masses only in the sense that he preached publicly, meaning anyone who liked could listen, anyone who liked could just pass on by, but he knew that the remnant would listen. And knowing that nothing was expected of the masses under any circumstances, he made no specific appeal to them. He didn't accommodate his message to their measure in any way. He didn't care two straws whether they heeded it or not. As a modern publisher might put it, he wasn't worrying about circulation or about advertising. Just speaking the truth. So with all such obsessions quite out of the way, he was in a position to do his best without fear and with... Uh, with being answerable only to his boss, the Lord. Think about that when you think about the messages that you consume and the sources from which you get your information. Are they watered down or are they, are they otherwise made to, to appeal to you? Do they, do they appeal to baser instincts? In other words, try to make you angry, try to make you fearful, try to make you proud. I'm better than those people, <laughs> those idiots. Just a little something to think about. Here's the kicker. The masses don't care about the truth. What they care about is whatever is in it for them next. And this is one of the reasons why uh, it's, it's okay to find yourself out of step with the masses. Frankly, in this day and age, if I see somebody out of step with the masses, I'm like, cool, that's a person I can respect. <laughs> Not that I'm disrespecting anybody else, but, you know, someone who's willing to, to not march in lockstep, that's very good. But for, for the prophet Isaiah, all he had to do was speak the truth, give his best, and that was enough for the remnant. And I believe it's the same thing in our day. You don't know who the remnant is. They're quiet. They're unassuming. They don't uh, draw attention to themselves. Why? Because truth matters to them more than accolades. They're people you would probably overlook in most public settings. Why? Because they're not drawing attention to themselves. But they're essential. And I speak to you as though you are part of that remnant. You are essential. Why? Because your attachment to truth is what will enable you to be the kind of person who can help build things back up when it all comes crashing down. And it does from time to time. This is not new. This is not like, oh, that's never happened before in human civilization. It has. So if the truth matters more to you than those feelings of comfort or the feeling of acceptance or the feeling of, well, at least I am on the side of the majority, I can't recommend this essay enough. Albert J. Nock, Isaiah's Job. Yes, it's in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Among my many excellent sponsors is a company called Life Saving Food. And there's a link in the show notes. It's right there each day when I publish the show notes. You'll find links to my sponsors. Click on the one for lifesavingfood.com and just take a look. You know, we're talking about food storage, which the more I look around and the more uncertainty I see in certain directions, the more I think, yeah, this is probably a really good idea, especially when you're talking about food with a 25-year shelf life. That's some peace of mind. You know you're going to use it at some point, and they have different packages of all different sizes for people of different budgetary restraints, as well as people who are just getting started or those who are just, you know, filling in a few gaps in their food storage program. Here's the best part, though. They'll knock 10% off the purchase price if you include HYDE, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code when you go to check out. It's a great company. I strongly recommend them. And yes, you will sleep better at night knowing you are set for whatever may be coming down the pike. All right, back to the concept of disciples, followers, and cheerleaders. It was a really hard realization for me because uh, for, for all the years that I've been in radio, it's always been, you know, the bigger the audience, the better you're doing. And somewhere along the way, I don't know where, um, something clicked where I started to understand that uh, this is no longer about uh, drawing in the, the most massive audience ever. In fact, if, if you want a mass, you want to appeal to the masses, you got to be more superficial. That's a, I mean, it works. So don't get me wrong. It works. The masses like superficial things. And if you want to draw their attention, you will have their superficial attention for a time. But if you're looking to just simply give your best, whatever that message is, you have to accept the fact it's not for everybody. I like how T.K. Coleman from the Foundation for Economic Education puts it. And he says, it's, it's very simple. Not everybody wants what you have to offer. That's life. But he says, some people desperately need what you have to offer. That's purpose. So if you've been thinking, well, I don't know. I just don't, I don't know if I want to speak up. I don't know if I want to draw attention. Does it matter if anybody's even listening? They're listening. But you have to be okay with the idea that it may be a smaller number of people because that message may not be for everybody. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that the people who don't need it or don't want it are, are stupid or, or evil. They're just not your people. And that's okay. Your people, though, are waiting for you to, to speak up. And you may not even know who those people are. I think this is one of the coolest things that uh, that I've ever experienced in life is to run into somebody years down the road and learn that uh, something I did or something that, uh, that I said or something that I wrote impacted them in a positive way because it was totally unknown at the time. And it's, and it's not always, you know, just, you know, political musings or, you know, thoughts on whatever the current events are. Case in point, uh, I, there, was a, there was a young lady I worked with many, many years ago early in my radio career. She was the receptionist at, at our station. And when I would show up for work, I was working nights, so I'd show up about 4.30 in the afternoon, go on the air at 5, and, you know, it was, 
She was there. I'd sit and visit with her for a few minutes while I waited my turn to get in the studio. And time went on. She moved away or she she went her way. You know, there's, there's a fair amount of turnover. And uh, years later... I got a message that uh, this this young woman had uh, made a decision to to join the church that I belong to, and she had asked if I would you know participate in um, that uh, that ceremony you know that uh, that acknowledged you know her joining the church. And I was very shocked to find out that one of the reasons why she had made that decision was based on the conversations that she and I had had when I was just killing time waiting to get in the studio. Now, I that was I did not go to work with the intent of, you know, today I'm going to go do missionary work. I, I had no idea. In fact, honestly, I can't remember what we ever talked about. But apparently what we talked about um, at some point involved me sharing with her, you know, this, this is stuff that has made a real difference in my life. I don't remember ever doing this, but she said that I never forgot those conversations that we had. And so, you know, when it came time to, to reach this crossroads in my life, I felt like I could proceed because, you know, of what you and I had talked about. And I just went, wow. And it got me wondering, you know, okay, so how many times has that gone wrong? Have <laughs> I've heard done something that's going to keep somebody, you know, from the truth? Now, that may be in a religious sense, but I want you to know this applies in other areas as well. And if you have the sense that uh, you need to be counted, that you need to stand up and be counted, whatever that is. I don't know what it is that drives your heart and that uh, that drives, you know, the things that are most important to you, but you do. And for some people, it may be, you know, I am all about holistic health. I'm all about herbs or I'm all about, you know, eating a properly balanced diet or essential oils or whatever it is. I know people scoff. Oh, yeah, right. You know, like there's any scientific, that's okay. Again, if, if somebody scoffs, they're just not your people, and that's, that's just fine. But if you feel that call that you need to stand up and be counted, this is probably the time to take it seriously. I know a lot of people are questioning things because they see the, the growing, uh, I want to use the word chaos, but that sounds a little maybe overstated. They, they see the growing unrest and, and unease around us. I mean, it's it's a pretty weird time, right? When people actively cheer the idea that, all right, New York school district has, you know, the New York City school district has just mandated that all teachers will be vaccinated or they won't work for the district. They can't persuade somebody. You just force them. And people cheer that as good, good. It's about time somebody did this. Yeah, we're, we're in a very unhealthy place as a society. And I think all of us are feeling the strain of it. I can't think of anybody I know, no matter how well adjusted, who, who doesn't feel like, wow, there's a real sense that, uh, that things are kind of careening out of control. Well, there's something to be said for moving forward with purpose. And what I'm going to suggest won't, make sense to everybody, but if you're one of those people who has that sense, that little nagging voice in the back of your mind that says, you should be doing more, or there's more that you could do, because you understand, you know, there's there's right and there's wrong, and you want to stand for what you believe is right, 
I'm going to encourage you to act on that. Even though it's scary, even though it will draw attention that that may be less than supportive, that's a diplomatic way of saying you're going to get hounded. <laughs> you're gonna you you may even awake the the ire of the cancel culture folks. Do it. Do it anyway, knowing that there's purpose in that, and there's something to be said about moving forward with purpose. It takes away a lot of the fear and and. The most important part, though, is you'll see at some point that it does have impact, and I mean the right kind of impact on the people who need whatever it is you have to offer. Years ago, I took a hike in Dark Canyon down in southeastern Utah. Very remote, very hot. We were doing this in August, and it was just brutal. And all that week, and and I had worn boots that unfortunately were much too small, and so by the end of the week, My feet were killing me. And our very last night there in the canyon, we had just set up camp, and I'm relaxing. I'm off my feet going, oh, my goodness, I I can barely walk another step. And suddenly we get a flash flood warning over one of the uh, hike leader's uh, radios. And we had to tear down our camp, and we had to be out of that canyon in 30 minutes. And it's a nice, steep climb up out of that canyon. And I remember thinking, this is going to kill me. Because <laughs> there were times I really thought I was going to die that week. It was so hot, and it was so strenuous. But when there was purpose behind what I was doing, you know what? I still found the way to make my feet move and to move with purpose. The, the only difference here is, if you're serious about finding whatever purpose you need to be moving boldly forward with, your best bet, assuming that you're a believer, is to hit your knees, take it to God, and ask, what should I be doing? And ask with the understanding that uh, you will get an answer. And it will probably scare you. In fact, that's one of the ways you'll know it's uh, it's an answer. You'll be like, really? (laughs) And feel a little bit scared. Do it anyway. The world needs your influence. The remnant needs your influence. This is The Brian Hyde Show.